encounter. We're in this encounter series. Um, Jesus' encounters with different people throughout Jesus' life. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to talk about how culture and context matter in Scripture. And so we want to pull some context and culture out of these encounters. So today, I'm going to talk about two of Jesus' encounters, all right? Two encounters uh, with people who are so historically important, you will find them outside of the Bible. And because it is June 25th today, I thought I would tell us a Christmas story. Alright? So, what are we going to do today? We are going to talk about two different people, but they both have the same name. Their names are Herod. How many people have heard of Herod before? Good. Got some Herods. Alright, so Jesus was born at the time of a ruler named Herod. I want to talk to you a little bit about this ruler named Herod. Now, in July or in January of 2015, the last time my mom was at church, and she's at church again now, um, I talked about Herod, and I talked about all this. And so I know, just like my mom, that everybody's going to remember every word that I said in January 2015. So this will be a review, right? Good? Yeah. Let's talk about Herod. Herod was the ruler when Jesus was born. What does that mean? Well, when you are a Caesar and you have a lot of, you have a big empire, and your empire stretches from Great Britain to India, you get people to pledge allegiance to you, and when they pledge allegiance to you, what you do is you say, with your allegiance, I make you a regional ruler. Okay, so Herod was a regional ruler over the area of Israel. All right, he was an incredibly rich ruler. Okay, he was innovative, he was crazy, he was paranoid. Can we stop this thing from hissing? What was going on? He was paranoid, he was like, it was nuts, right? He was, he was kind of crazy. So let's talk about some of the good things that Herod did. Herod actually went to the Caesar and said, hey, these people here, these people here really, really like worshiping their Hebrew God. And I know you're the only God, but is it possible that we could tolerate them? And Caesar says, yeah, it's possible that we could tolerate them, but no funny stuff. And so what Herod does is he goes out and he builds a temple for the people of Israel. This temple was so incredible and so big that part of that temple is still standing today. How many people have heard of the Great Western Wall or the Wailing Wall? Have you heard of that? That's part of the temple that Herod built. Pretty amazing, right? It's still around today. Um, and he built this temple. Did he build it because he loved the people of Israel so much? No. He built it because there were six million people in the, in the Roman Empire who were Jewish. And he said, you know what? During high holidays, they need a place to go. And if they come to my temple, I'm going to make a ton of money. So that's why he built it. So he built this temple, uh, but he also erects all these statues, too. So he erects all these statues of Caesar. Now, Caesar was the main god. So even though he built this temple to, uh, uh, for the Jewish people, the Jewish people, whenever they walked by a statue of Caesar, would still have to say, Caesar is Lord. And if they didn't say Caesar is Lord, then they got beaten, they got killed, they were arrested. Uh, I've talked about this a lot. And so you have this juxtaposition happening. During this time, you have this beautiful temple, but then when you pass Caesar, you say Caesar is Lord. So there is a tension that is brewing within this context, within this culture. Um, Herod was incredible. He uh, created the first aqueducts. That's impressive. People had running water. He created the first ways of preserving food to the point where archaeologists found his food 2,000 years later. It was still edible and drinkable. Can you believe that? 2,000 years later. That's incredible. Herod lived on it. Now, let's talk about the other things Herod did. Not only did he put up statues of Caesar, but he also put up a statue of an eagle on the temple. Right? Now, an eagle was the symbol of the Roman Empire. So every time you walk into your temple to worship your God, you're reminded that the Roman Empire is watching over you. Uh, at one point, four Jewish students tried to desecrate this eagle. They were brought in chains into public with Herod there, and they were burned alive for doing it. 
Herod would go into town and he would listen for people who were talking bad about him. And if, they, if he heard somebody talking bad about him, then he would stop and have them killed right there on the spot. Herod killed uh, his wife because she was bad luck in a battle. He killed most of his sons because he didn't want them to take over. When Herod was getting ready to die, he said, I want you to build me a stadium so that when I die, you can fill the stadium with people and kill them all so I know that there will be mourning on the day that I die. And then they went and built a stadium that sat roughly half a million people. That's kind of crazy. That's who Herod was. Starting to get a feel for Herod. Picture of Herod. Okay. Let's talk about economic repercussions of the time of Herod. Herod built a lot of great stuff, but he built a lot of great stuff for people who lived inside the walls of Jerusalem. They were the elite. And so you had the Roman, uh, the Roman government, and then you had these, this Jewish government, the Jewish elite. They were called Sadducees. How many people have heard of Sadducees Right? There used to be a song when I was a kid that said, I don't want to be a Sadducees, because Sadducees are sad, you see. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that terrible? I mean, they were the happiest ones around. They were rich. No. Um, so Sadducees were there, and uh, they basically were towing the line between Roman Empire and Jewish culture. But outside of the walls, outside of the walls, people were poor. People were broke. People had nothing. And so um, the reason was this. Let's say that you spend a year of your life Growing whatever crop you're going to grow. Somebody name a crop for me. Come on. Good. Lots of corn. So, <laughs> corn doesn't grow anywhere in the Middle East either. But let's just say, okay? Corn. We spent a year growing corn. Okay? We spent a year. And so we're going to take our corn. We're going to take it to the gates of Jerusalem. We go up to the gates of Jerusalem. There's a tax collector at the gates. And what this tax collector does is the tax collector says, right now, that 50% of your corn goes to Herod. 50%. Half. Okay? Then, another 13% of your corn goes to Caesar. So before you even have a chance to sell everything that you worked hard for that entire year, before you can even get through the gates, you've already given away 63% of what you've grown. Now, the reason tax collectors were so bad, the reason that Jesus hung out with them, because nobody else would, right, is because then the tax collector would shake you down. The tax collector would ask for another 15 to 20% of your goods for themselves. So if we do the math, before you can even get in to sell your goods, before you can get in, you have lost 80% of what you've grown over the course of an entire year. That is what's going on. This is the, the climate that you are living in. This is the socioeconomic climate in which you live. Can we understand why Jesus has given us this day our daily bread? There's some urgency behind that. Right? A little more urgency than we know how to do it. So this is what happens when we get to this verse. And here's the Christmas part. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when he rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod, he heard, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. I mean, this is like the most understated line ever. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Why was all of Jerusalem disturbed? Where were they living? You guys can answer. In the walls. Life is good. Of course we're going to be disturbed if we hear there's a new king that might be on their way. So what does Herod do? He does this. He says when, he's, when he realizes that he's been outwitted by the Magi, he's furious. He gives orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and his vicinity who are two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Herod um, had a palace, and the palace uh, where, is actually where he's buried now, overlooked Bethlehem. 
So one scholar was saying, if you lived in Bethlehem, and you were a boy in Bethlehem, um, Herod was literally looking down on like breathing down your neck. That's kind of a scary thought. Do we feel some of the tension? Jesus hasn't even been born yet. Do we feel a little bit of the tension? A little bit of the weight? So what happens, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and says, Get up, take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled. And what the Lord said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. Now, we can split hairs about Roman empires. Split hairs about immigration laws during the time of the Roman Empire. We can do that. But here's what the UN says a refugee is. A refugee is someone who has been forced to flee his or her country because of persecution, war, or violence. A refugee has a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. That is what a refugee is. According to the UN, millions of us are going to gather today, including the few of us that are here right now. Millions of us are going to gather today, and we are going to worship a refugee. That is what we are going to do. In fact, we believe in this church that God, right, God uh, uh, says, you know what, I want, people, I want people to know my true character, so God comes as human, as man, as Jesus, so we call Jesus God incarnate. And God, who's infinite and all-powerful and unimaginable, like we say all the time, can come as anyone, the elite, uh, the one within the walls, the one that has power over power over power, and our God comes as a Jewish refugee in a first century oppressive empire. We worship a Jewish refugee in a first century oppressive empire. That is who we are worshiping today. We have no idea what that feels like. <laughs> None. I sometimes think the Bible is for 20th and 21st century America. When I read it, I read it. I go, oh, this is for me right now with all the money that I have and everything that I have. Very rarely am I thinking about people who live outside the walls, people who are running for their lives, people who have to make decisions based on whether or not they might be killed. And I stop and I say, my God, and have this man as a first century Jewish refugee in an oppressive empire. Or oppressive empire. So what does Jesus do with his refugee status? Well, with his refugee status, we get to the second encounter. And the second encounter is with someone also named Herod. Herod Antipas. We'll call him Herod A for short. How does that sound? Herod Antipas was the son of Herod. And what he did is he basically took over and just kept all his father's racket going. So kept in, in line with the Sadducees, made sure that the Jewish people could still worship when they needed to, but really was all about the Caesar, so killed people at will, did all the things his father did. In fact, if you read the Bible, we're familiar with this Herod. This Herod is the one that killed John the Baptist. You guys remember? He said to his wife, what do you want? She said, John the Baptist had on a plate. He's the one that did that. So we have this Herod. But Jesus is back in Israel now, and Jesus is teaching, and he's preaching, and he's healing, and he's telling like great stories, great parables, right? And then all of a sudden, these Pharisees come up to him. The Pharisees, they get a bad rap. These Pharisees, these guys are racist, decent guys. And they say this, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. That's like the, duh, like no-brainer, right? Herod wants, really? You want to... Here's Jesus bringing in one kingdom, right? What kingdom is Jesus bringing? Jesus is bringing in a kingdom of nonviolence, and you have Herod ushering in a kingdom of violence. 
Jesus says it's selflessness. Herod says, oppress others for your own selfish gains. Jesus says, withhold power. Herod says, use power. Jesus says, include others. There's an inclusiveness in my ministry and my gospel. Herod continues to live behind the walls. Of course, Herod wants to kill you. So what does Jesus say? What Jesus says is awesome. What Jesus says, in fact, um, if we were going to read it on Facebook, Mike would come out with something that said, what Jesus said in response to Herod is amazing. Like one of those things, you know what I'm talking about? You can't believe what Jesus says as a response. He says, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow, and the next day, for surely, no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. So, in Jewish culture, if you wanted to, like, like the worst dig you could give somebody, the worst thing you could say to someone, the worst, if they had, like, poor character, if they were shady, if they were, like, the worst human being ever, it was, like, the ultimate insult was to call them a fox. You go tell that fox. And this is the best part, my favorite part. For surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. What's he doing? He's making a reference to the walls, to the elite living in the walls. He's like, you want to kill me? Why don't you come out after the walls and get me? What we're dealing with here is a class battle. We're dealing with a God who is saying, hey, I'm not for the people that are in those walls. You have to come out to where I live, to where my people are, to where the people I value are. This is where I do my ministry. This is what life is all about. We want to see God's character is happening right here amongst these people. And this is incredible. This is where I think Jesus' encounters with the Herods and Formos, because we start to see bits and pieces of this in other parts of the Gospel. So if I jump over to Luke, and I read this, Luke 9, 57 and 58, it says, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replies, Foxes have dens, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Foxes have dens. Wait, wait, who's the fox? Herod. Birds, what did I say earlier about the thing that they put on the top of the um, temple? The eagle. Foxes have dens, birds have nests. What is Jesus saying here? Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said it is hard to leave the power and the comfort and the wealth of this kind of an empire. Can you do that? Can you leave the power and the comfort and the wealth of something that looks like this empire looks. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, I don't have any. What do you want to do? You know what he says right before this in context? Or right before when the Pharisees said he wanted to leave? This to me is the biggest part. This is why this encounter matters to me the most. Right before the Pharisees say, hey, Herod wants to kill you, this is what Jesus was doing. Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. Raise your hand if you heard of the narrow door before. Raise your hand if somebody in Sunday school or at church told you about the narrow door. If you would. What does the narrow door mean to you? Think, take a second and think about it. What is the narrow door? Will some of us be saved when we talk about the narrow door. What is it? For me, the narrow door meant... I make sure I have four or five platitudes that are the right platitudes to believe that I culturally am a good cultural Christian. The narrow door uh, meant that I was baptized. The narrow door meant that I read my scripture in the right way. And then when I was younger, the narrow door that when my friends were doing all stupid stuff, I wouldn't do it because I had walked the narrow path. My friends were walking the wide path. 
the narrow door, but there's only a few people who are going to be able to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, and I think that's true. But what Jesus is saying, he's saying there's a narrow door and a wide door. The wide door is the empire. The wide door is privilege. The wide door is the one where we're able to be selfish for our own good. The wide door is the one where we use our power against others. The wide door is the one where we push and get ahead and gain uh, even at the expense of other people. That's the wide door. Are you going to choose the narrow door? My kingdom? The selfless kingdom? The equal kingdom? The inclusive kingdom? The kingdom that says withhold power for others? Herod is one person, Jesus is another. Their encounter shows exactly who I believe we are today. Because I believe that today in the U.S., maybe I'm wrong, but I would say most of us in this room have never, never had to make a decision um, based on whether or not someone in our family would be killed. That's my guess. Maybe I'm wrong. My guess is that some of us in this room, most of us in this room, we've never had to uh, have 80% of our wages taken away from us before we were even able to pay a bill. And I know we live in Brooklyn, so. <laughs> my guess is that none of us in this room, maybe some of us in this room, but my guess is none of us in this room have ever had an oppression experience that has been life or death. And yet when our God, when our God decides to come to this place, when our God decides to inhabit humanity, our God comes as the oppressed, the refugee, the one running away in the face of privilege, in the face of power, in the face of empire. And I don't know what to do with that. You know why I don't know what to do with it? Because we live in America, in the 21st century. For the most part, we have the things we want. We don't deal with that kind of pressure. We don't deal with that kind of oppression. In fact, most of us can go ahead and live the life we want to live, albeit the money not might be there. But we're not running for our lives either. And I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who goes to our church, and he said, Jonathan, this is crazy, because the, the way you preach sometimes, I feel so guilty. Like, I, you know, and he said to me, he goes, you know what was easy? The old narrow door. When I just had to believe a, a certain right number of things and read the Bible the right way, and, and then that was easy, man. This narrow door is really, really hard. He said, man, I knew I feel kind of guilty too. Because what we're doing, what Jesus is calling us to do, is to make whole systemic changes. He's calling us to change the way we operate in this world in regards to everyone. And it feels impossible. Feels like this giant task. So what do we do? Well, I think we just simply say yes. We just say yes to what's right in front of us. So we did this campaign, right? And I said, you know what? We need to raise some money for our church. I said, we need to raise $60,000. And I said, you know what? We can't change, uh, you know, we can't stop the refugee crisis we see halfway around the world, but we can do something. We're going to say yes to it. So for the 60K that we raised, 12% of that's going to go to refugee relief. That's what I said. That's just saying yes. I'm happy to report that as of yesterday, we raised $70,000. So saying yes means that we're going to give what we really can't afford to give. We're going to give $8,400 to refugee relief. That's what we do when we say yes. We don't have to change the entire system, but we can say yes. Then um, Judy, she gets a phone call, my wife, she gets a phone call, and they're like, hey, we need help moving a few people, and I've told you some of you this story before, 
And so she goes, yeah, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll help move people. She calls up a couple other guys, and a couple other guys are like, yeah, I can help move people too. And so they go to Howard Beach, and Juby like helps move some stuff in. She makes some food. The other guys build a bunk bed, and they get it all together. And then this man comes in, and the man says, I'm a refugee from Syria. My wife is a refugee. She was able to come three years before me. She was pregnant. And I'm going to see them tomorrow. And they said, see them? And he goes, my son was born here, and I haven't met him yet. Tomorrow, I'm going to meet my three-year-old son and my wife for the first time. And they're going to come here, and they're going to have food and beds and a place to live. Thank you. That's what it means to say yes. Just say yes. What's seemingly insignificant? You know what happened on the way here this morning? The seemingly insignificant thing where uh, you know, Ramadan is being celebrated, and there's this religious like tension that's happening in our world and we didn't have a place to park the van and one of these men celebrating Ramadan came up to bed and goes, hey, take my, take my parking spot. That's them saying yes. Little things. Seemingly insignificant. Our God does not come into a place of power and privilege. The God we worship comes as an oppressed Jewish refugee in the first century empire. And our God changes the world. And our God says, you know what, I love you so much that there is a death and a resurrection so that I can use you to change the world. How do we do that? By doing the seemingly insignificant things day in, day out. By simply saying yes. When you say yes, we Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a part of an empire we're part of something bigger. We're privileged and we benefit from the empire of God. God, you put us in this place for such a time as this. We're thankful for what you've given us. But God, allow us to allow us to be ready. Allow us to pay attention. Allow us to say yes to what's ahead. Allow us to say yes to the people who look like you, God. The people who are who are, who are refugees, who are need at all. Allow us to move towards courage and away from fear. Move towards being a little bit more uncomfortable. And God, when we don't have the courage to do it, we're so grateful. And you are gracious and you are good and you are loving.